existence after the fall in Eden is not fit to give us meaning. It won't do it. This is a crisis for us because we all desire meaning. We all want to find it. We all want to feel it. And in Ecclesiastes 1-2, he writes, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all, everything is vanity. The writer observes that everything in life is absurd and futile, meaningless, and that's the theme of the book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, as we've been discovering. And in this next section tonight, he begins to prove his thesis, and the first way that he does it is from creation. Few characters in film have illustrated the point of this first section better than George Bailey in the wonderful film, It's a Wonderful Life. I'll never forget the first time we showed this to my kids, thinking that they would like it. My daughter, Sophia, about midway through, she was so little, she said, it's not a wonderful life. He has a horrible life. So (laughs) Bedford Falls could not satisfy him. It could not give his life any meaning, no matter how much beauty there was. In his simple life there, living in an old drafty house, as he called it, with the love of his life in a little town with the same old job and the same old enemies seeking the welfare of his neighbors, that was way too mundane for George Bailey. All he ever wanted was to leave all of that behind for the world, remember, for adventure. Only then could the ache in his soul be healed. You remember in the beginning of the movie that what he tells his pop, as he called him, I I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. That's that's what he said. And one of the reasons this movie has endured so well and for so long, the reason it still strikes such a chord in us when we watch it is because of how easy it is to identify with George Bailey. He lives by at least two of the very same assumptions most of us do. The first, interestingly, is that if our lives are going to matter, and they're going to be important, it will have to happen somewhere other than where we are. We'll have to move somewhere else, go somewhere else, be somewhere else to do it. Secondly, we believe that once we do find that, then we'll be satisfied and happy, content and fulfilled, no longer restless with ourselves and with our world. So no wonder we approach Ecclesiastes 1 with such hesitation. It bursts That balloon once and for all, it tells you it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter where you move. You're still under the sun, right? Verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, before we start tonight, we need to understand that gain, of course, in verse three, at the very least includes monetary gain. We want to have enough to enjoy ourselves or spend on others after we've paid our bills and met our obligations, of course. So it does carry that meaning. But more importantly, gain here is in the context of gaining meaning more than anything else. We often find that not only uh, do we need more materially, always it seems like, but our souls don't have enough either. We're trying to find a reason, a purpose, or a point to everything we go through. We want our lives to matter And the idea that this world or anything or anyone in it can deliver that is precisely what the preacher is trying to deconstruct in Ecclesiastes. For all its beauty and dignity, it is there. The world simply cannot give us meaning. And he goes straight to the theater where we exist here in chapter 1 to 
creation itself to show us how even it is reminding us every single day of our meaninglessness. And just as gain here means more than material things, toil here means much more than what we do to make our money. It's talking about all the effort and passion and anxiety maybe that we give, that we exert to find meaning. But beloved, apart from God, we will not gain anything from all our toil here under the sun. If something new never appears, never enters humankind, we're stuck here and nothing will ever change. And so let's pray and we'll talk about it. Father, we thank you for your word, how it holds us together and speaks life, breathes into us. Father, I ask that that is what you would do tonight through the words of Ecclesiastes 1, which on the surface and the deeper you go, of course, are so devastating but so true and so important and are pointing us to life. I pray that you would show us this. I ask and pray this. I pray that you'd watch over me my mind and my mouth and the ears of everyone who hears for the sake of your name and our faith and hope in you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 3 through 11 of Ecclesiastes 1. He writes, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Verse 3 is the heart of this section. It really is under the sun is, of course, the created world. Solomon uses that phrase or something like it more than 20 times in this book to describe the world in this endless loop or as an endless loop, if you will, that we humans are living in. It's a phrase that means we're trapped in a world that for all intents and purposes doesn't change and we can't get out of it. And interestingly, the preacher begins really by bypassing God altogether in order to focus his attention exclusively on the earth beginning in verse 4. You see it there. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The first thing he reminds us of about life under the sun is that a generation goes and a generation comes. He's referring to the cycle of persons and activities in the world. If you were to draw a straight line on a piece of paper and write my birth at the beginning, my death at the end of it, the short line in between those two phrases is your generation. Uh, if, if we, if you stack millions of them together, right, you, you get to what, seven, eight billion of them right now, that would represent one generation that rises as the one before fades away, and then that one fades away, and another one comes, new lines. Our lives and the lives of the people we know that we grew up with, they're just a short breath. James 
picks up on this. That doesn't change. James 4.14, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. People and things are soon forgotten. There are things that are very much a part of my memory and my mind and my life growing up in the 80s, the greatest decade of all time. Unless you ask somebody that didn't grow up in the 80s, it's the decade they were in. She, I don't mean anything by that. It's just that's when I was growing up. I, my kids don't know anything about ALF. Remember Gordon Shumway? You remember that dumb TV show? I thought it was life itself. I loved ALF. They don't know anything about it. If I tried to get my kids to watch ALF, they would clown me out of the living room. Right? I, I, I have the hardest time explaining to Carmine how awesome G.I. Joe was. He's, he's not interested in that. He doesn't even see it. I, if you mention Eric Davis, Sammy Sosa, Walter Payton, Walter Cronkite, to my kids they say, who? And if you mention Cardi B, Cersei Lannister, um, Rajon Rondo, to my grandma, she says, who? Right? So it just, if you if you want to know how old you are and how much has changed, listen to what they play on the oldie station. Old to whom? Right, who, who are we? Who are we talking about here? 80s music is old now. It's just my my kids laugh at the safety dance song. That song again. That was life when I was a kid. This this is this is universally true. You you find this out right away in the Bible by Exodus one eight, the second book of the Bible. The Pharaoh that began to rule didn't even know who Joseph was. Didn't even know who he was in Judges two ten. A generation arose in Israel that did not know the Lord or the work he had done in Israel. How did that happen? Verse 11, look down there. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Have you ever realized that we've never heard of basically everyone that has ever lived? Basically, we know very, very few of the people, the stories, the names, the lives that have ever been lived. We know so few relative to how many people have actually lived on the earth and do right now. And we don't know most of the people we have heard of. We just know of them. We just know their names. Even the few people who do manage to go down in history that we have to study about, it's not like they're always on our minds, like we remember them all the time. 9-11, that was a moment that changed the course of history for an entire generation of people. I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I remember the first person that said something about it as they were watching the news report. I mean, I remember everything about that day. And now it's just another thing my kids are studying in a history book to get a decent grade on a quiz. And that was 20 years ago. Everything that means everything today is soon going to fade from memory. So, of course, we feel the weight of the question in verse 3. What is to be gained by all that we're doing to find meaning, to get gain? Solomon looks at nature. This is very interesting to exemplify this for us. Look at verse 5 again. Let me read 5 to 7. Notice what he's doing here. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on the circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
to the place where the streams flow, there they flow. Again, what's he describing here? The endless repetitive activity of every single day that passes on the earth all around us. You can hear the weariness in his voice as he recounts it. The seemingly endless cycle of the sun, for example. What the Egyptians called the wheel in the sky. What Journey, the 1980s rock band, called the wheel in the sky. The sun, as it drags itself from one end of the sky to the other every single day, whether you can see it through the clouds or not. As he ponders his life against the sun, it reminds him, that's why he's talking about it, of his brevity here, his futility, maybe even the absurdity of living on the earth. The wind blows to the south in verse 6 and then circles back around to the north. There's no end to it. It's just always going. It's always changing course, but it never accomplishes much. It never really brings any lasting change unless there's a huge storm by the wind, but then everything is rebuilt and the wind just keeps blowing. Who knows if what blows through your hair on any given day is the same wind that blows through somebody's hair in China. Life is like that, Solomon says. Life feels like that. The cycle of life is transient. That's why he's talking about the wind. We can't figure it out. It's just there. It's impossible to break. And then in verse 7, just like the earth and the sun and the wind, the cycle of water keeps right on going down through the years, but there isn't much to show for it. Despite the constant flow of water into the sea, it is constant. The sea never spills over. In fact, that cycle repeats itself endlessly. Streams flow into rivers, rivers flow into oceans, and it all comes back again. How many times are the same drops of water seen the same places Despite all the work and motion of nature, nothing genuinely new or innovative ever happens that changes everything. The first part of verse 8, that's the result of what he's just said. All things are full of weariness. You get what he's saying? When Solomon says the earth remains forever in verse 4, he knows that's hyperbole. right? The earth is not going to remain forever. But that's what it feels like to live under the sun. That's what it feels like. He's highlighting the contrast between the length of years in which a human being actually lives against the backdrop of the length of years that the sun has actually been rising and setting. If you and I were to walk outside right now, I don't know if you can still see it, and look at the sun, you do realize you're looking at the exact same thing Adam and Eve looked at. The exact same burning star. I love Ansel Adams' photography. I love it. Black and white pictures of nature. There's a picture on the calendar in my office of the Cahuilla Gap in the Sierra Nevada Mountains from 1932. And I could go there right now and look at the exact same spot he took a picture of almost 90 years ago. And it looks exactly the same. What's the point he's drawing from the sun? What's the point he's drawing from all of nature here? When you and I die, the sun will rise the next morning. Tide will come in, the wind will blow, and eventually another generation of human beings will do the same thing, see the same thing until they're gone and the one after them rises to see the same things again and again. It doesn't matter if the days are good or bad, they fade. Our celebrations and our tragedies both become memories until nobody remembers them at all anymore. Right? It, it might be nice to know that our pain won't last, but it hurts to know nothing else will either. So if we try to get gain from what we see outside our window, 
all we know is pain or all we will know is pain and frustration. Toiling with all that we have among people and things that are fading while the sun keeps right on shining gains us nothing. The earth is like a rock star on tour who gives it all for their next performance. But if you catch them later in their hotel, late at night after the last show, what do you see? You see the dark circles around their eyes, the fatigue, the sense that for all the applause, there's still something missing. The preacher is letting us look inside the hotel room of the earth after a beautiful day in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. The earth is bone tired. He says, bone tired, weary from performing again and again and again and again. Even the beauty of the sun eventually makes you sweat or squint. All things are full of weariness. Everything about humans and toil and earth, sun, wind and sea is tired. It was tired in almost 930 B.C., Right. Imagine how tired it is now. And in the second part of verse 8, Solomon gives these three stanzas of pure poetry to try to describe how impossible it is to truly understand how exhausted everything is. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not made full by hearing. Are these the things on which Paul was reflecting in Romans 8, 20 and 23? When he says that creation is like a slave subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption, longing to be set free, longing to break this cycle it's in. Creation is longing for that. Solomon saw that. And Solomon saw in that something whispering to him about meaning. Creation is like a woman trapped in the pain of childbirth every day. Imagine that, ladies. I, I Obviously, I don't know what that feels like, but I, I, I again... I've been to four. I know it doesn't feel great. So if, you, if, you're, if you're feeling that, creation feels that every single day. What was once Eden now groans. That's what creation is doing. And think about how beautiful so much of creation is. But if you listen, you hear it groaning. It's tired of performing every single day. It's in wisdom that Solomon is speaking to us from God not to set our hopes for gain on the things that groan. Zach Aswine calls creation a shoe store for someone needing medicine. It provides very good things, but it doesn't provide what you need. And our effort to get what we need from it creates this emptiness from which Solomon wrote these things. This is what will eventually happen to our souls if we keep trying to get gain from the world, look at verse 8 again. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It, it, no matter how much you see, it will not satisfy. No matter how much you hear, it will not satisfy. We were all little once. right? You remember that feeling two or three days or so after Christmas when you want more? right? When, when what the other kids got is more appealing than what you got, and now you can't, you start planning for what you're going to ask for next year. It's so great to see little kids go through this, right? Just a day or two after Christmas next year, I'm going to ask for this, and we've all felt that. We, we, we've all felt that sort of thing. And, and Solomon knows 
He's hitting close to the mark here. He knows how this sounds. He knows it annoys us to hear it. It's old news. Look at, look at 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. And, and you might think, well, of course, he wrote that in, you know, in, in the BCs. He didn't really understand, you know, he didn't know what was going to be invented. That's not what he's talking about. Every human being in every time and place would tell you the same story. No matter what their generation invented or achieved or gained. It's not that new things can't be invented. That's not what he's saying. Or created or that we can't experience different things or experience life differently relative to where we are in the timeline under the sun and what's been invented and what exists. It's that there's always the same result in the human soul, no matter what's invented, meaninglessness. So yeah, it's, it's true Solomon didn't know about iPhones, he didn't know about peanut M&Ms or airplanes, but his, his, his focus is not on the things we can create. He's talking about the fact that every human being toils to get gain from what he or she creates or invents or from what can be discovered, and it never comes. That makes us feel like, yeah, there's nothing new. It's, so what? That's what it means to be human. New inventions or new undertakings might seem new to the current generation on the earth. Like, imagine how new uh, or... or it was when we detonated the atomic bomb, when people landed on the moon, right? How that felt to see those things. That, that, but we forget that in times past, the same type of epic, E-P-O-C-H, meaning, epic making events happened to those generations too. The invention of dynamite, that would have been a, that would have been surprising. The invention of electricity, the first Europeans landing in the Americas, right? So, That feeling happens again and again and again relative to what you're experiencing. Let me read this, uh, this quote from one of my commentaries that this, every human being has tried to navigate food, clothing and shelter. Each one has wrestled with what it means to work, to provide a way of life, to make their way, to hope and weep for their children. Crimes, wounds and enemies are not new. Handling weather patterns, sickness, Romance, aging, sadness, forgiveness, commitment, laughter, and dreams has not originated with us. Putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact, delivered us from dictators, or eradicated a selfish heart. New inventions make our bones heal quicker, but not our minds, not our hearts. That's why most human questions have hung around for generations and generations and generations, no matter what's been invented or discovered. It isn't changing the root question. It isn't giving meaning. Uniqueness doesn't heal the ache in our bones. It can't. It would be nice if it did. But everything here gets old. Do you you remember the first time you smelled your new car? Inside when you got it. You remember that smell? Remember how exciting that was? And now it's just your car. Maybe it smells like Doritos, like ours does now. Instead of whatever that beautiful smell is. That's life under the sun. 
Solomon says. That's what it's like. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Do you feel that, beloved? As I've talked tonight, do you hear that voice inside you saying to me as you watched that video? I, I, again, I, I don't, I didn't show you that video because I thought it would like change your life. I just, it's just very powerful to me that a guy like Johnny Cash gets to the end of his life and that's what it's like. You notice he was sitting like all around all the stuff, all the trophies, all the awards, all the, that his money's gained him and that's what he's saying. And, and you, you know that people feel that way. Like that's not a shocking revelation. It's just to see it. I wonder like when, when he was 30, did he think that's how it would end up? So you hear that voice inside you. When I say these things, thanks a lot, Tony. That's very great. That's very uplifting. That's why I came out here tonight. Beloved, that's the point. That's the point of this book of the Bible. Don't run from this. Sometimes it's wiser to feel like this than it is to suppress it. Stay with me here. Just stay with me as we work through these things. It's God himself who has made it this way. It's the first thing we should do is pull back from the way we feel that frustration and annoyance and just the slog of it and say, okay, God made the earth feel this way. He wants you to know this about the world. He wants us to recognize it and embrace it. He does not want us to pretend it isn't like this so we don't have to face it or feel it. That is folly. Beloved, God subjected the world to futility. God put it in bondage to corruption. God is the one playing the loop. It's Him. And because we're so destroyed by the fall... That if he doesn't do this, we won't ever realize, for all its beauty and dignity, this is a prison. As long as unbelievers are determined to reject the existence and reality of God, they will never, ever, and it's a tragedy, break through this unending cycle of time and repetition. But it's very much the same for believers who refuse to grapple with the reality of the fact that we live under the same sun they do and share the same temptations they have to eke out meaning, to get gain out of the world. We just try to do it through nicer things than drugs or illicit affairs, maybe, right? But we also try to extract meaning from the world and get gain from toiling. We toil over our families, our careers, our church traditions, And on and on and on it goes. Beloved, gather up everything in the world, good or bad, all of it, the terrible and the beautiful. And as Johnny Cash sang, you can have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. If we insist on the course of rejecting God or rejecting His truth, then down in the dark where no one sees, deep down inside where the truth lives, we will only ever hurt there is one thing that is permanent one thing that is absolute beloved one thing and it's nothing here 
Apart from God, we will not gain anything from all our toil here under the sun, whether it's noble or evil. Because of something that is actually new. You see what he's saying? If something that's actually new never appears, if something doesn't happen that can break the cycle, make no mistake, we are stuck here under the sun. And 500,000 years from now, no matter what it looks like, it will feel exactly the same. But for the purpose of understanding Ecclesiastes, once you realize that, once you're willing to embrace that, you're finally ready to hear about Jesus Christ. Because there is something that has happened under the sun that was new. Jesus Christ came. And because of Him, what is the promise? What is God going to do? Make all things new. This meaninglessness, beloved, will end now because He lives, because God raised Him from the dead, and because of Him God will raise you and I also. Now, for example, in the Lord Jesus Christ, our labor is not in vain. Why? Why? What's the difference now that now labor for the believer is not in vain if we're still under the sun of the world hasn't changed because in Jesus now we understand gain is not the means of our life. Labor is not how we find life. Toil is not how we get meaning. Jesus came to tell us this, to rescue us from this. That work you do that maybe you love or you hate is not where you get meaning. That's not what it's doing for you. Think about how men talk to each other and I'm, I'm talking as a man. So one of the first questions guys ask each other when they meet, what do you do? Why? Because that's how men define their value, their significance. I can't speak really for women on that. But as a man, what, what do you do? By the way, it feels really great. I'm a, I'm a coal miner. I'm a, I'm, you know, I do this, I do that. I'm a mechanic. What do you, I, I, uh, I'm a preacher. Oh, yeah. Cool. Anyway, <laughs> all right, that's what, that's how the conversation goes. Jesus is the one who breaks the cycle of trying to get meaning from what we do. Meaning from our toil. That's what Solomon is bemoaning here. You work, 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 toil, toil, toil like creation and you just end up tired and empty. What can be gained from it? And then Jesus comes and now the word coming to us is your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 it's, it's, it's not in vain. Why? Again, because the Christian doesn't work to gain. The Christian works to give. Because he has everything and needs nothing. This is why it's so important to believe all the truth of the gospel. It even impacts meaning. We don't work to get gain. We work to give. And in a world filled with so much need, such labor will never be in vain. All that we do, all that we do to point others to the way beyond the sun is not in vain. Whether you vacuum the church carpet so that no one, think about this, you vacuum the church carpet so that people don't get distracted 
right? So there aren't crumbs laying around bothering people. So that's petty. Well, yeah, but it's life, right? These things distract. So when you vacuum the floor or clean something or pick up a piece of trash, think about this. What are you doing? You're removing an obstacle from people hearing the truth when they sit down and I open the word or whoever they're going to listen to. Now you have helped make it so they aren't distracted. How is that any less important than what I'm doing right now? Right? What makes that? What makes picking up a piece of trash meaningful? Jesus does. You say, well, that, that's so, no, 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 beloved, that's, that's the truth. That's the truth. If, if Rick Cramrick, and you know Rick, I don't mean to embarrass you at all. If Rick didn't know how to fix cars, how much money I'd be out all the time? Rick takes that burden off my back for me so I can study and pray and think like a nerd. But he does that, right? Do you realize what Rick does for this moment on any given week? That's the world Jesus created the morning he came out of the grave. It's new now. This one is dying Everything Solomon says about this one, he's absolutely correct. And we've got to talk about it because we're still in it. But something new has happened. Something new has entered the world that's actually new. Right. In Philippians 1.21, for example, what does Paul say that sounds so crazy if you're trying to get gain from the world to live as Christ and to die is what? Tell me. Gain. Well, that's Solomon's word. Right? Where does gain come from for the believer? Not here. We gain by dying, do you see? By getting beyond the sun. Gain doesn't exist under the sun. Gain can only be found for human beings on the other side of this life. Again, not under the sun, but beyond it. Jesus has cracked that code. Gain can only be found in the arms of Jesus, who came to wash away our sin, wash away our guilt. And look, I know that we as believers don't generally feel that way. Jesus never promised you that you would feel forgiven. He never promised you that you would not feel guilty and weighed down. Beloved, it's a life of faith. That is the truth because he said it is. I am not guilty. I am a sinner. And I am not guilty. If nothing new had ever entered the world, how could I ever make such a statement? Only in the light of his face is there gain, beloved. Only there is relief. Only there is rest. This world does not hold the key to itself. It's, it's not here. We're not going to find it. There's nothing here that can unlock the safe of this world so we can figure out what's wrong and fix it. But what are we in 2 Corinthians 5.17, beloved? What are we? New creation. Something different. Something different. It was in the garden that this desperation began. We, we can't rightly understand Ecclesiastes' life under the sun until we go back to Eden. We really can't. God made it clear in Genesis three seventeen and 18 that we will toil for nothing. 
That's what Solomon's picking up on. I toil for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I told you that back in Genesis 3. I told that to Adam and Eve. What was meant to be meaningful and satisfying, very simple, streamlined, remember, in immortal paradise, became a lifetime of toil that ends with what? You return to the dust from which you were made. But the cycle of the dust, you see, was broken by the one who calls himself what? The resurrection and the life. If Jesus doesn't enter the world, all there is is dust. And so, yeah, you could spend, you could spend a life of 120 years trying to eke meaning out of it. You're going back to the dirt. Methuselah did die. It still happened. God has put us under the sun so that we will ache for him. And in our aching and frustration and exasperation, we'll see the one who will one day replace the sun. Remember Revelation? Will we need a sun there? No. He will be the sun. He will be the light. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how it answers the cry of the Old Testament, of the whole world every day, longing to get beyond the sun? And Jesus says, when I take over, we won't need a sun. I'll be the light. It's beautiful. Only that time when he is the light, darkness will never come again. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to take us beyond the sun. Beyond it. Because under it, there's nothing to be gained from all our toil. And if you want proof of that, look in the hotel room of creation late at night when it's exhausted from another performance. Run to Jesus, beloved, and rest from your toil to get gain. Whether that gain is material, emotional, or spiritual, run to Him. And only in Him is it found, the one that takes us beyond the sun.